This is Sustainable-ish with me, Jen Gale, and it is great to have you here. Listen in each week and I hope I can brighten up your day and leave you feeling inspired and excited about the magnificent human being that you are and the power that you have to create a better world. You won't find any expectations of eco-warrior perfection here. There's no obligatory tree hugging. You won't be judged if you drive a car, wear leather shoes, or eat the odd pack of Haribo every now and then. I'll be sharing my own gems of wisdom for sustainable-ish living, and I also relentlessly scour the internet for people doing amazing things to tackle the big environmental issues that we're facing, and I hound them until they agree to come on and inspire us all with their fabulousness and the positive change that they're making. So sit back, listen in, and get ready to change the world one baby step at a time. Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Sustainable-ish podcast. Huge apologies for the impromptu lack of an episode last week. I'm in the middle of a couple of super busy weeks with carbon literacy training and speaking gigs and catastrophically failed to get my bum in gear and my ducks in a row. So apologies for that, but this week's episode is well worth waiting for. I'm chatting to Parisa Wright, who is an absolute powerhouse of positive change to the extent that I possibly felt the need for a nap after speaking to her, (laughs) see if you feel the same. I am in absolute awe of her passion, her energy and her complete commitment to creating a greener and cleaner world for all of our children and for future generations. Parisa's journey starts in the same way that many of ours will have done, looking at the changes that we can make in our own life and our own homes. But she then started to think about how she could get others involved in her local community and created a local Facebook group and started running regular events. But not content content with that, she went on to create a fully fledged charity and raise hundreds of thousands of pounds to open an eco hub in a large shopping centre in London. And even then, she's not content and is involved in research into how we engage people with the behaviour changes that are needed and is looking at how the charity can support other towns and cities to create their own eco-hubs. As I said, Parisa is an absolute powerhouse, and for anyone who ever says, but what difference can one person actually make, I will certainly be pointing them in her direction. I think you're going to absolutely love this episode. Please do let me know. Leave a comment in the show notes, which are at podcast or find me on social media where I'm at Sustainable-ish. Please do share the episode with anyone else who you think will find it inspiring and enjoy. Hi, Parisa. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. We've got so much to dive into with this one. And you and I have been kind of like, stalking's the wrong word, following each other online, haven't we, for for quite some time. And we have spoken before, but this is nice to be able to have a, not quite an in-person chat, but to have a proper chat and almost a little bit of a catch-up that people can listen into. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Tell us who you are and what you do. Okay, so my name is Parisa Wright. I am a mother of two. I am a lawyer of 20 years, and I'm the CEO and founder of Charity Greener and Cleaner. And also I set up a sustainability facilitator, <laughs> facilitation business, I should say. I don't like to use the word consultancy. 
called Sustainability Right, which is more grounded in how to get employees to engage with sustainability to support the business goals and their own goals. But um, yeah, my my main pride and joy, apart from my gorgeous girls and my husband, is um, Greener and Cleaner as a sustainable living charity around making sustainability um, more sort of inclusive and accessible to lots of different groups and demographics at different levels. Amazing. And I don't know how far to go back. So Greener and Cleaner started life as a Facebook group, didn't it? Yeah, it did. It did. It started life at the beginning of 2019. It feels like a million years ago, given how much we've done. But like, yes, yeah, essentially, I had been the previous year, 2018, I'd been off on maternity leave with my youngest. And I'd been at home with her that year and just watching the student strikers on TV. And I'd already been quite aware and I'd started already going pre-loved and, you know, making efforts, but like not on the, nothing on the scale of what we're doing now, obviously. But I just remember sitting at home just thinking, God, I can't think straight because I'm feeding my baby and I just like oh, hormones are everywhere. And but I know I need to do something. And so gradually, as um, towards the end of the year, when we stopped um, feeding and she was more on solids and my head started to clear, I started getting more involved in looking at different kind of Facebook groups and seeing what people were doing about it and noticing that there was a lot of zero waste groups or very specific um, groups around specific areas of sustainability. Um, and there seemed to be a lot of silos and it didn't seem to be very joined up thinking. So if you're on a zero waste group, you couldn't talk about re- using your car less or eating less meat, etc. You could only talk about plastic. Um, and to me, that just seemed a bit of a shame. Um, and it also felt like there was a sort of a bit of a judgmental kind of ethos to a lot of groups, obviously not yours, but like there were, you know, there are a lot of Facebook groups where if someone might say, oh, should I get cans or bottles, plastic bottles of Coke, because my husband will not give it up and I don't know what to do, but what's the better option? And I mean, for me, it's like, well, just tell them which the better option is. Like the woman tried, you know, (laughs) like don't beat her up about it. But then people would pile on going, oh, that disgusting, toxic stuff. Don't put it into your family. That's negligent, blah, 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 blah. You know, at the end of the day, like people need to be able to feel that they feel safe to ask a question and wherever they are on their journey. Yeah, I talk about the uh, the big green bashy stick, do you know? Like it's yeah, just exactly. so, and whether I presumably, uh, well, I hope it's, it, you know, it's more prevalent on social media than in person. I really hope people aren't going around, you know, when, when someone finally plucks up the courage to ask a question about something in person, I hope they're not getting bashed over the head. But um, it feels, I don't know, somehow people think, feel more able to, be more forthright or whatever you know when their views don't they on on social media and I think it can be really mm-hmm. daunting as somebody who's just tiptoeing in and making a start to to ask a question and just feel like whoa hold on yeah. a minute I just stopped asking a question or even people who are trying to share something nice like I don't know I've just um sorted through my fridge and now we're only going to eat leftovers that are in there and we're only going to buy odd vegetables and stuff. But they've left a picture of their fridge which shows food in it or which is big or which has whatever in it. And suddenly instead of people going, oh, that's a really good idea, which is what they were hoping for, people to encourage them and people to be inspired, they get that criticism of how can you afford to have a fridge that big or like, you know, why do you have so much food? It's really, it's just so unnecessary. And it was almost like that sort of like weird tribal club mentality of like, Oh, if you want to be in our club, you have to do X, Y, and Z. Anyway, I think it's a shame. Um, And hopefully over time that will ease off (laughs) because as we normalize and popularize sustainable living between people like you and people like me and our groups and about how it's different for everyone and everyone doing what they can is actually quite significant because we're not saying everyone just needs to recycle. 
we're just saying everyone's circumstance is different everyone's motivations is different everyone's you know uh, every everyone's situation is different and so people doing what they can do but being aware of the sort of more impactful things they can do and working towards those things is what we all really need so at the end of that 2018 with all those student strikers and starting to look at their Facebook groups I started to put together an A to Z of donation and recycling because I felt that was one problem I walked down my road and I saw all these recycling bins out and you know on my road people who live in those houses like you know they've been to university generally they've got children generally you know they can afford to have a car you know they haven't got a you know none of them are working five jobs kind of thing but even in that relatively privileged position they couldn't work out how to use the recycling bins so there would be plastic bags in there there'd be polystyrene in there floating around there were tins full of beans in there there was someone had put half a Christmas cake, I'm not joking, back into the cardboard box with the window on it of plastic and put it in the recycling box. I'm not sure what they thought the poor binmen were going to do with that, you know, the recycling guys. Are they supposed to eat it or, you know, clean out for them? But it was just like, I was just a bit, oh my God, those poor kids giving up their childhoods, begging us to do something. And even these sort of like well-off, comfortable, educated people with children you know, are struggling to know what they should do. And I think a lot of it, actually, I soon found out was actually about lack of clarity rather than malice. Mm. I don't think anybody's deliberately waking up and thinking, what can I do to really screw up today? I I think some people do have an attitude of, oh, well, if I stick it all in, they'll work it out. And what they don't realise is actually that makes the carbon footprint much bigger because that item has to then be shipped from one factory to another factory to another place again to be burnt. Or it just means the whole lot just gets done. Yeah, all the whole my husband and I stuff. often uh, have little discussions shall we say <laughs> about wish cycling you know he'll like whack well it looks like it should be recyclable well <laughs> yeah it does and it probably is somewhere but not outside where we live so don't put yeah, it in <laughs> exactly 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 and I'm like oh that's a pizza box no only the top bit can go into the oh. recycling because the bottom bit has food on it darling yeah 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 but then it's like but it's cardboard and I think some of that comes from people want to do it they want to do the right thing you know but it's incredibly confusing isn't it it is incredibly confusing so like that's one of the first things I did was this donation uh this mindful donation and recycling thing which basically had an a to z of different things and what you could recycle and where you could donate things and especially local places like women's refuges or homeless drop-in centres or charities that take makeup or underwear or broken shoes or the things that you don't know what to do with so that people weren't dumping them at the dump or dumping them at the charity shops because actually the charity shops are overwhelmed and I think quite frankly people just don't think about the charity shops they just think oh well I'm sending it to the charity shop so it's okay if I buy more I'm sending it to the charity shop so I'm doing a good thing but they don't often don't clean things they often don't sort things it's again like that sort of wish recycling. It's like wish gifting. It's like actually 50% of that stuff probably can't be used by them. Then they have to pay to dispose of it. But also just think of like the human dignity of those poor volunteers who are going through these bags of things with dirty socks and like, you know, Tupperware boxes with food still encrusted in them. And oh, I did a, um, when I was writing the first book, I, I asked in my group, um, you know, does anybody work in a charity shop and what's the weirdest things you've ever been donated to try and have a little, some examples in there of, and yeah, people were like uh, a wax jacket with shotgun cartridges in. Um, <laughs> I can't remember what the other, but yeah, like you say, stuff that's just dirty, missing things, you know, miss even missing buttons, but jigsaw, you know, and yeah. all we're kind of doing is passing on that guilt to someone else to then landfill. And, and as you say, that 
I think there's that danger of using charity shops almost as a panacea for us to continue yeah. to consume because it's all right because we're giving it to the charity shop. Exactly. At the end. And if I talk to people about pre-loved, I'd say mm, about a third of the people I talk to about pre-loved go, oh, well, you know, we don't buy things secondhand, but we always give things to yeah. charity afterwards. And I mean, that's great, but that doesn't really solve the problem because, you know, in the UK, we buy more clothes per person than any other European country. You know, you know, globally, the fashion industry is the second biggest polluter after fossil fuels, the second biggest waster of water in the UK. I mean, sorry, worldwide. And like, you know, they make more greenhouse emissions than the aviation industry and the maritime shipping industry combined. It's, it's a horrendous industry for the planet, basically. And we, out of all the European countries, have the worst habit of buying cheap clothes and like getting bored of them and buying another one sort of thing. So the idea that you then send it to charity doesn't really avoid the fact that charity shops are overrun with cheap throwaway fashion. African markets are overrun with cheap mm. throwaway fashion that even they can't use. You know, the quality is is just going down the toilet, basically. Like, it's much, obviously, it's much better to buy something that's better quality, pre-loved, that's going to last you a long time, that you can mend, than to buy something brand new at Primark. But yeah. it's getting that sort of, like, normalisation of and there is a convenience no. factor in there as well, isn't there? We found yeah. this at, when my kids were still at primary school, that we'd have a, a secondhand uniform service. And exactly as you say, and, and in, in a relatively affluent area, and everybody was really happy to donate it and get it out of their house and stop it cluttering up their house. But very, very few people were using it. And some of that might have just been a, a whether there was a little bit of a stigma thing. But I think the biggest thing was if you're busy and you're time poor and you're, you know, you're not having to watch every penny, it is easier just to go to MS or go to wherever on the website, order it, know it's the right size, know it's going to be there, know it's going to be, you know, whereas it's mm -hmm. like you're taking a bit of a gamble. Are the, are they going to have it there? I don't know. I mm -hmm. can't get into school on the day when the shops, are, you know, all that sort of thing. So it is a big, I guess some of it is how we make it more convenient for people, which is, you know, like places like Vinted and stuff online. That's, you yeah. know, I think they're brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. And even just having... Even having that pre-love the rail there every Friday in the yes. school playground so people know that I don't need to worry if I miss it this week. I know every Friday it's going to be there and I can have a look. Because I, I, what I found interestingly is with pre-loved, like, I get much more hesitation from people who financially probably would be better off going with pre-loved than from middle-class people. Because right. middle-class people don't have anything to prove. They don't need to yeah. show they've got money. They can dress rough. They don't have to wear designer labels. They don't have to buy new because... They have nothing to prove. They have no stigma to get away from. But if you yeah. are struggling to pay for your food or you're struggling to pay for shoes or whatever, you want to get that new outfit for your kids from Primark or you want to buy that new school uniform because it shows you're not totally desperate. But at the same time, unfortunately, it's it's doing a lot of damage not only to your bank balance but also to the planet, which they're going to inherit. And if you have less money as a family or if you're from an ethnic minority group or another minority group, you're going to already be suffering more than anyone else from the climate crisis in terms of food prices, in terms of heating, in terms of lots of things, and air quality as well, you know. So those groups who are most affected at the moment seem to be least engaged with, with pre-loved. Yeah. And so one of the things that we're trying to do as a charity is, you know, look into how you reach different groups and different demographics and really understand what their motivators are, really understand what the language is that turns them on and off so that we can, like, think like a corporate and go right mm. corporates have thought this way about how to reach different groups and demographics and how to sell to them we need some marketing people on board yeah. don't we we need yeah. some advertisers exactly. yeah so that's what that's what we're doing now with with um, the charity that's how it's grown it's grown from being this tiny group on facebook so basically end of 2018 i did that a to z there was lots of um 
positive feedback from local community groups and mums groups. So I said, okay, I'll set up a little group so we can gather together and see what we can do locally. I'll feel less alone. You'll feel less alone. We can do more together, et cetera, et cetera. From the moment we set up, we were having two events a month. One was a meeting and at least two events a month. The other one was like, I don't know, myth busting for recycling or litter picking or learning to sell, whatever it was. And it grew and grew. And so within two or three months, four months, it was at 2,000 people and now it's 7,000 households. And essentially, we were just always making sure it was a talking shop online so people could share their ideas and swap tips and advice because people want to be heard. People want to support each other. And everyone's got something, some advice they can share, which is fascinating. And people love hearing other people's stories. So like a bit like your group as well, like what I think is the most interesting is not necessarily the article that gets shared about, I don't know, how to measure air quality or, you know, the impact of cars or whatever. It's actually people's stories about, you know, actually my child has asthma attacks and we've looked at, you know, the air quality. And that's what fascinates people and that's what gets people to change. Well, that's what connects us, isn't it? Stories yeah. and feelings and emotions is yeah. what connects us as humans and as people. Yeah. And the facts and the stats are really interesting, but they're only, only ever going to engage a certain you know, probably the people who are already engaged. It's yeah. those stories that people can relate to that are super powerful, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. So that's it. So we set up the group. It then turned into a CIC within about three or four months, which is a community interest company. It's basically a not-for-profit kind of legal entity, a community interest company, but it's just not quite as much hard work as a charity. <laughs> not as much red tape, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then um and then that first year, we did loads of loads and loads of events for the community, like about 30 events or something. Wow. We did a big schools event where schools come together from Southeast London and share what they were doing to reduce their environmental impact. And again, peer-to-peer sharing is so much more effective because if one school sees another cash-strapped poor school who's having to deal with Ofsted and everything else that life throws at them, but they're still managing to do X, Y, and Z or give you tips on how to deal with this hurdle and that hurdle that's what has effect so that's always been really popular and since that first year we've always done that every year and we also did the first ever climate focused hustings for the borough because the student striking group in the borough begged us to get involved with that and we were exhausted after our first ever fundraising thing which was raising about fifty thousand pounds for a local school with really poor air quality to have um green screens and air purifiers in it but straight after that they were like oh the election's just been announced got to do this so we did it 2019 (laughs) almost killed us but we did it and um yeah so we've just grown from there basically so and you're doing all this whilst working full-time or part-time or like yeah good question um yeah so while having a one-year-old and a three-year-old and working four days a week in my legal job And then also, I have to say, when I went back to work, not only did my brain clear so that I could set up this little group on the side, but also I then went to the waste management team and the sustainability manager and just said, right, what can I do? So then I got involved with doing some extra hours pro bono on (laughs) greener TV production because I was working at ITV for the last 11 years. So how to make TV programs greener, um, as well as looking at what's on screen, which in my opinion is much more important. Um, but also then later on moving on to help with the steering group for the PLC in terms of getting sustainability change across the business and sort of meeting our commitments as a FTSE 100. So that was really interesting as well, but it just meant it was an initial commitment again on top of my day job. So so where did you get, because I know now you've, I say knocked lawyering on the head, but and we'll move on to that and we'll come on to that in a minute, but just hearing what you did and having a little bit of experience of what it's like 
you know, I, I, the majority of the stuff I do is online. And I think that's where my happy place is. I find it really difficult to mobilize people in my local community, in person. Like, how, how, where does your energy come from? You absolutely are a force for nature. Like, you say something's going to happen and it happens. And I'm always like, oh my God. I have to, right? I've got kids. I'm just so totally driven by the fact that, like, so before I set up the group, me and my husband had this moment um, at the end of 2018 where we were both suddenly just, we'd seen something on TV about the strikers and we both just looked at each other. The kids are both asleep and we both teared up. And he just said, have we been incredibly selfish to bring these children into this world at this time? Not in the sense that, okay, we've made our carbon footprint bigger, but in the sense that we've brought two humans into the world who are probably never going to enjoy life in the same way we have growing up, right? Um, And God knows what's going to happen. But like, you know, let's focus on the positive. I'm sure we can have an impact. But the point was, we knew they weren't going to have the carefree life that we have grown up with and therefore ended up in this mess because of, right? Um, And I just said to him, we can't cry because we're on the situation. We're in the situation that we're in. There's no point in us crying about it or getting depressed about it because that doesn't help them. What we have to do is work out what we can do to make a difference. Mm. And sort of being in the London borough with the highest car ownership and a space where let's just say that there is, there is some caution and some anxiety from those in places of power (laughs) Right. About the ramifications of sustainable living and how they may affect the status quo Mm -hmm. or whether it's car drivers or, you know, anything else. Basically, there's a hesitancy and a concern that uh, we shouldn't consider ourselves as central London boroughs who should be focusing on, you know, fair use of the roads and air quality and all that sort of stuff. And that actually we should be focusing more on things like you know, biodiversity or recycling, right. recycling. We're one of the best barriers for recycling. So, so um, yeah, so I basically just felt that actually there's a lot of things we can be doing. A, we can do our recycling correctly, first of all, but, <laughs> but then we can use that as a way to bring people onto more impactful things. So whether that is walking and cycling safely, whether that is uh, eating the amount of meat our GPs recommend. And I'm not talking about going vegan or veggie necessarily, but I mean, at least reducing, because that would halve meat consumption in the UK. So what's what's the GP recommendation then for meat? It's like, it's um, a pack of playing cards, 70 grams, something like that. That's how much protein or how much meat you should have on your plate. Should that have a day? Or... Um, it's, I think it's per meal, but you shouldn't be having more than two a day. Right. Uh, but even that is questionable because that is like a few years out of date. So it's yeah. probably it's probably like more like once a day, to be honest, for health reasons, because we have a massive diabetes and obesity yeah. crisis in the UK at the moment. We have massive problems with heart failure and strokes. And a lot of that comes down to the amount of meat, basically, and dairy, but meat, we're, red meat, especially we're eating. And a lot of that has gone from being, you know, in the... 70s and 80s we would have eaten certain portions but as we became more and more americanized Mm. um we started supersizing everything you know um and so now you'll have a massive chicken breast or a massive chicken breast and a thigh or you'll have a huge steak or whatever it is and and actually what we need people to do is think about where the meat's coming from you know the sustainability of it and the ethics of it and just eat less of it you know if, Mm. if you can't go vegetarian or vegan i totally understand but like you know, just eat less, eat the healthy amount so that, you know, you and everyone else is putting less strain on the NHS and on your families, you know. Like those co-benefits, isn't it? I talk about this a lot in carbon literacy training. So it's not just this is a great thing to do for the planet, but actually when we start to think about 
physical health, mental health, like you said, strain on the NHS, all these sorts of things. There's, of there's so many. Well. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, if you're trying to save money, it's a good one to go to for. <laughs> Definitely. And when you said, oh, you know, you had this little Facebook group and then you started doing like two events a month, just the thought of that, two in-person <laughs> events a month locally, makes me just, I mean, have you got, did you manage to find a really good team of buddies around you or have you always, because when I try and get stuff going sort of locally, it always feels like it's just me to a certain extent yeah. and I'm pushing Treacle uphill and it's, it, and, it's, and I, it's draining. <laughs> Really it is draining. I think um, to begin with, the, the events that we did were quite well. One one event a month was us just getting together to talk about what we yeah. were trying to do as a group, but also everyone sharing their stories. And people love that because they wanted to hear what they could get involved in. They wanted to share what their latest tip was, mm. um, and people really enjoyed that. And that was generally in the top room of a pub, etc. And you'd just build that as a social, would you? Yeah, that was like a social, but. Usually, I mean, sometimes we'd have someone presenting at it or something, yeah. you know, and I'd usually talk about what we were doing next as a sort of community group. Um, and then we also had one event a month, which was like, I don't know, a litter pick or a talk or whatever. Yeah. And I generally looked at what people were interested in at the time. Right. So it would be like sort of I'd see someone, they kept mentioning recycling. Recycling is such a, you know, so like I got in touch with the lady at the council who's absolutely amazing. Amy Harris, who is really passionate about what she does on waste reduction. And she was really happy to come and spend a couple of hours with us talking and being like grilled, basically, yeah. on like, um, you know, how the borough recycles and where everything goes yeah. and what we recycled and all that sort of stuff. And we had like 70 people turn up to that, uh, which is amazing. I mean, some of the things like you'd have a litter pick and maybe 20 people would turn up. But a lot of it was me spending the time kind of like... <laughs> chasing people up and reminding people it's on this weekend by the way I was gonna say like that nitty-gritty of like yeah you know so was did you do all the promo through social media or did you literally go around with posters putting them up in no, shop no, windows social media, 100% and social okay. media 100% social media and if there was an event and I was worried about not enough people coming I would go back let's say it's about I don't know sewing bags mm. I'd go back through our posts on Facebook and social media and see what posts there had been about sewing and upcycling and then I would message each of the people who'd commented underneath just saying, just a reminder, we'd really wow. love to see you at this event because obviously you've got skills to share. And if people would message me saying, oh, I want to come to that event, then I would just sort of like remind myself to message them back Amazing. near the event as well. So, yeah, there was a lot of chasing up at the beginning. The first few months was like really sort of. But being really proactive and yeah. actually because I think lots of us maybe get disheartened or nobody comes but the difficulty with social media is they probably haven't seen it or they've maybe seen mm -hmm. it once and then they've forgotten about yeah. it or and so all these blooming algorithms and stuff and so then we think oh nobody cares I'm yeah. just and actually if maybe if we were exactly like you a bit more targeted and proactive and I love that bit that you said obviously you've got skills to share that yeah. not unnecessarily flattering people but like we'd love to hear from you and your yeah. experience and like you say people love to share and to share the things that they're good at and their tips and stuff and that's great that's something we want to encourage right as a culture in our community mm. is everyone sharing what they can do with each other empowering each other and it's the country it's the countries it's the communities you have community at the heart of their culture that care for one another that are going to be the most resilient to all the things that life throws at us, whether it's the pandemic, whether it's climate change, whether it's crazy energy prices, it's those communities who really take care of each other and have this culture of responsibility and compassion that are going to do well. So I think anything that encourages that 
um, empowerment and, sh- and sharing and, and collaboration in community is only, can only be a good thing. So the only other tip I would say is, is that as, I grad- as we gradually got bigger, it got easier and I didn't have to chase people as much. But one thing that I found really helpful was recognizing the fact that I was not the only pe- person who cared about my community and wider. Actually, there were loads of charities going on. Okay, they didn't have an environmental focus necessarily. Yes. I mean, I made friends with Bromley Friends of the Earth. They're a great group. They weren't really doing many events, but they were themselves meeting once a month and they're very passionate. So they got involved with us. And in fact, when we did the um, hustings, we did it with them and the student strikers as well as our charity. But I found like identifying all the different charities locally who are doing something, whether it's homelessness, whether it's women's refuge, whether it's there's a lot of different mental health charities um, and actually connecting with them and seeing how we could support them, um, whether that was through doing a partnership on an event so that their members could enjoy it or whether it was them saying, actually, you know, what we really need is pre-loved women's suits for the women's refuge so people can go for interviews or whatever it is because not only does that mean that you're tapping into groups and you're giving them that support and sustainability but it also means that your members you know can know how they can help their community wider and can feel empowered and especially when it comes to like sharing pre-loved or sharing skills it really makes you feel good to know that you're helping specific people in your community with specific issues that you know that you didn't know were there or that you wanted to help but you weren't sure how and actually by giving them 10 pairs of football boots that, you know, charity that works with teenagers and mental health issues or by putting on that workshop or whatever it is or supporting on that workshop, you can help those people. I think that's really empowering. And it means also those groups get pulled into the conversation and start thinking about sustainability within their own organisations. Yeah, and that really echoes. Um, I There's a there's an episode I did with the guys at Zero Guildford, a, a community climate hub. And, and that's exactly what they said is, is, you know, they reached out to the allotment group, to the beavers, yeah. to the, you know, and just trying because we're, there are all these, you might think nothing happens where you live, but there will be loads of different community groups that are going on, but they're all doing their own thing under their own and trying to sort of bring everyone together around, a, a you know, there will be a connection there. And a lot of the time it will be community and how you can sort of make where you live a, a nicer place, that sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. How did you go from? <laughs> um, I can't just, just I was just trying to think of all the things you were already doing at that point. So, like you say, mum of two, uh, working four days a week, getting drawn into extra stuff at work around sustainability, two events a month, and managing this sort of online um, community as well. Um, to what you're doing? Well, you have to tell us first what what you are doing now. But w- at what point did you go? This isn't. You know, most people would go that's enough I'm really tired we went no that's not enough (laughs) well I mean if I'm completely honest I think we should be like these days about these things um that first year of the pandemic where I had a two-year-old and a four-year-old at home with me and I was trying to do my job Mm. and those extra sustainability elements um on top of my job because I thought they were the most important part of my job to be honest uh, logically immorally <laughs> and yeah. and on top of that I was trying to do a good number of hours every week on the charity keeping it going um, you know at the same time we had an amazing CSO come on board just before that and she was like oh let's restructure the group so that or the CIC so that we've, we're using everyone's skills so what's a CSO so a lovely lady who is a business management consultant, wow. basically, who was a member of our group, you know, just like I was a lawyer and I set this up, right? She is a business management consultant. And she said, actually, we could organize this better so that you're not kind of running yourself in the gr- into the ground kind of thing. 
So we got people to fill in forms and volunteer as to what role they might like in this structure she came up with. But unfortunately, then just before we could call everyone to get them on board and actually start doing stuff so that would take the pressure off, uh, the pandemic hit. And we didn't feel comfortable, obviously, approaching people and asking them to you know, deliver on what they'd said, you know, three hours a week, one hour a week, two hours a month, whatever, doing X, Y and Z. So during that first year of the pandemic, that was really hard because I had two very young children at home, one who'd only had six months of primary school Mm. and then was home. And I was doing my day job and that was really, really hard work, often required me working in the morning, in the evening, because I was trying to juggle kids as well as my work. So I would feel like I had to constantly catch up. And then obviously, if I had a moment spare, I was trying to uh, do sustainability work, whether with work or whether more so with the charity and by the end of that year we came to March 2021 and my boss said oh you must be feeling really good that the kids are going back to school now and I was just like (laughs) I couldn't I couldn't talk straight I couldn't I've never literally I mean like we've all had stress in our lives but like I was just hanging in there, hanging in there, hanging in there because I didn't want to let anyone down. I didn't want to let the community down. I didn't want to let my colleagues down at work. I didn't want to let my part of the business down. Um, you know, I felt like jobs relied on me keeping it going. I felt like my community relied on me keeping it going. And I basically completely burnt out. Like I couldn't think straight. I could barely talk straight. I was crying a lot. I, I was unwell I was really unwell I was completely burnt out and it was just an unfortunate it was just an unfortunate sort of timing of just when I was going to get a lot of help and support um we couldn't do that because the pandemic came Mm. and everyone had so much to juggle and you know to be fair and Claire as the chief strategy officer as a CSO and a couple of other people like Emily and Maria and Rachel and people did step up and we were, we had been working together, but it's just, it had been a lot of work and a lot of pressure. And so basically I burnt out and they really did have to step up and, and, and Claire in my absence really like ran things. And she's the one who managed to get us converted to charity straight status, despite all the hard work that's involved in that. Cause she's worked with a lot of charities before and you know, she has a lot of experience in the area. I mean, this is a whole nother podcast we could probably do on the, you know, yeah. the benefit posing, but what was the rationale between for, for wanting to be a charity rather than a CIC? Um, I'd say there were two or three main things. A, if you want to fundraise for community projects, it's much easier if you're a charity. Right. A, people understand it more and B, there are more funds available for charity. Okay. Um, and then B, um, if you're a CIC, you are not allowed to do anything political, which is seen as political. Oh. Um, and the de- de- definition of polit- political can even extend to you going, Oh, I don't know. Can you, can you, hey, council, please, can you recycle food waste now? Wow. That's political. Or like, oh, can we have a, you know, can we have some more crossings or more cycle lanes to the borough? That's seen as political, even though it's just a logistical question. Yes. Because you're asking them to change policy and their plans. It's seen as political. So obviously that doesn't make much sense if you're trying Mm. to do something to do with the environment locally, certainly to begin with. So, so yeah, so we changed to a charity but also we kind of were feeling that more and more of what we were doing was uh shareable (laughs) repeatable elsewhere so that way it made more sense so she got she changed us to charity status so we went from greener and cleaner Bromley and beyond to greener and cleaner 
And she also, um, one of the issues that we'd had was in terms of demographics, and I've talked to a lot of different hubs and a lot of different community groups and charities dealing with sustainability. In terms of demographics, we had very high percentages of white middle-class people basically on Facebook and, and on um, our website. Yeah. And probably majority women as well. And so we were really, really keen to have a base where people would see us um, and would come and ask questions and come and get involved that wasn't somewhere they had to discover because of an existing interest in sustainability. We wanted to reach the people who weren't already sure that they wanted to be on that outside journey. the echo chamber. Yeah, outside the echo chamber. So she managed to speak to the local shopping centre, which is one of the biggest shopping centres in southeast London. It's called the Glades in Bromley. And they basically, with her, agreed to give us space in a prominent shop unit for a three-year period. And so as a result of that, we now have a community sustainability support hub, but it's actually not called that, it's just called the Greener and Cleaner Hub, in a beautiful unit next door to H&M, Waterstones, McDonald's, New Look, H&M, HMV, and the Entertainer Toy Shop. And so suddenly, like, we're in this unit which we thankfully thanks to our funding have done up to a really nice polished standard so it doesn't look like the poor cousin of Waterstones yes. or whatever uh, so it looks like a part of the commercial offering a part of normal life right in Bromley and we just as soon as we opened the range in socioeconomics the range in ethnicity the range in disability the range in age massively changed we have a lot wow. of elderly people coming into the shopping centers wanting something to do whether they're lonely whether they can't afford heating or cooling at home we have a lot of young mums who are feeling isolated and alone. We have a lot of people who are sort of wandering around, you know, trying to deal with mental health or, you know, teenagers going to McDonald's and then popping in, you know, a whole range of different people now who are dealing with loneliness and isolation and wanting to feel part of their community, but also interested in finding out more about what they can do, you know, to help it sort of thing. And so not only are the people who are already interested in coming in, but more and more other people are coming in and attending our events, which I'd say we have about four events a week now. Wow. Um, <laughs> and and like the, the demographics have changed and they continue to change. And people can walk past now and see people who look like them and they're like, oh, yes. actually, I will go in. Or they'll see people who are like look like them asking questions or leading workshops. So, yeah, so so we wanted a space that would be accessible to everybody inclusive of everybody inviting to everybody not intimidating and also not seen as fringe yes so we didn't want something that was in a church hall in a library in a civic center we didn't want something that was in a derelict mall or at the shitty end of the high street which is all Mm. run down we didn't want something that was like a cobwebby shop unit with like a poster stuck up with blue tack because that would just reinforce those ideas that it's not the norm and yes. what you want to do is normalise and popularise it. It needs to be a normal part of your and that kind of, trip to the shopping centre. This might come across as wrong, but sometimes that sort of slightly grubby, you know, like everything's on a, on a shoestring, which understandably so many, so many projects yeah. are. But as you say, that kind of sets it apart from what else is going on and what people's expectations are of what they're going normal to find. But you, yeah. you raised a phenomenal amount of money for the project, didn't you? Yeah, well, I mean... We've been very lucky, including goods in kind, I'd say over the last sort of nine to 12 months, we've raised about £700,000. Oh, uh, I went to cop with it That's last That's a lot year. of fake sales. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the thing is, as well, people locally just don't have money. So we did raise, I think, 50, 60,000 pounds wow. with GoFundMe's and that sort of stuff. 
But the rest of it really has been about thinking about partners that we can work with, like whether it's the local council, whether it's the carbon management team. We're collaborating now. So last year, as I got better from my burnout, I got more involved in what what Claire was doing with the unit. Um, She managed to make space in it for the Library of Things, which is a charity which is in lots of places in London and going beyond that. So I think Hackney, Walthamstow, Forest, um, Crystal Palace, et cetera, et cetera. So we are the first time that they are in a mainstream setting. So not in a library, but in a mainstream shop unit, which is really great. So this is somewhere where people can go and rent for a small fee, like um, yeah. a pressure washer or a yeah. floor sander or, a, yeah. you know, all these. Or a DIY equipment, leisure yes. equipment, you know, PA system, jet washer, mm. whatever it is. Um, and so, yeah, but now people can walk by and see it and, you know, yes. they don't have to go into the library and know about it to discover it kind of thing, which is really great. So, yeah, so she managed to get that sorted out, which was amazing. And coming back to the fold after a good few months off with burnout, I just said, you know, really want to keep our one stop shop focus because I believe that covering all seven areas of sustainability means that everyone can find an area they're interested in. So what are your seven areas? So like, I mean, I've sort of roughly broken down sustainability, (laughs) sustainable living and life into energy, transport, food, um, waste, which includes things like mending, lending, clothing, Mm -hmm. water, energy, whatever. And then using your voice, finance, um, buildings and built environment. I think there might be Amazing. one more. I can't remember I what it is. I think that was seven. I think I was counting on yeah, my fingers. As that was it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, basically the idea is, is that the research so far and looking at how you reach people with what language and what activities, et cetera, et cetera, because money is so tight for charities and for academia and even for civil servants who care about this stuff, then that means that they can only do research into this sort of like marketing angle or behavioral science angle on one area of sustainability or one or two demographics, but without intersectionality, et cetera. So what we're trying to do is go, right, let's look at this problem from a kind of problem-solving corporate perspective, which is we've talked to lots of civil servants, we've talked to lots of academics, we've talked to lots of charities. One of the biggest problems is, is that one message doesn't fit all. Yes. And the message as is keeps hitting white middle-class people. And if we were trying to sell something and make money out of it, then we would already know how to reach all those other groups and demographics. But because no one's making money out of it, right. and because money's so tight for the people who are trying to help, We haven't got the research we need. So what we're doing is we're taking that space and we're collaborating with Imperial College London to look at what language you need, what media you need to use, what initial activities you need to engage people with, and what's that gateway area of sustainability for that group and that demographic. We're looking at all seven areas of sustainability and we're looking at all demographics. So we can end up by going, let's say you're mums for lungs and you've traditionally looked at air quality and active travel and you've traditionally looked at parents with primary school kids. What would be really useful for you to know, as well as that stuff that you could afford to do, would be actually when you're looking at parents of primary school kids, how does intersectionality on race or socioeconomics affect their motivations and the language you need to use? But also, how do you reach those groups and demographics who are traditionally anti-school streets or cycle lanes, etc.? Perhaps they are retirees who live in the area. How do you reach those, I don't know, over 70-year-old white men or whatever it is that those groups and demographics? Well, now... They will be able to look at the research that we're conducting. Well, by the end of 2024, they will. And they'll be able to go, right, we need to reach this group on air quality. And they can go, right, as soon as we use the word pollution or cars, they're going to shut off. what, What this research shows us is, A, we shouldn't use this word or that word. But B, we need to start the conversation by talking about trees. 
maybe it's a collaboration with the Woodland Trust, maybe it's a tree planting project in in the local area, but this is how we're going to get them on board. And that kind of degree of like behavioral science research, neuroscience research, that gets done in the blink of an eye by any corporate who's trying to sell you anything. But because Mm. we as charities, we as academics, we as civil servants are not funded uh, in the right ways, people competing, people are doing scraps of research. It's very piecemeal. So what we're trying to do is we're working with Imperial College London. We're working with the advisor to the Committee for Climate Change on this topic and to to Cabinet Office. And we are also collaborating with Bayes' Net Zero team. So Bayes, just for anyone who's not sure. Yes, it's business, energy, industry, and strategy. So it's essentially kind of... Department, so it's a government department. Department of government, basically, yeah. And I kind of met them out at COP when I was talking about our project, uh, which is very exciting. How did that happen? How did you get an invite to COP? Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Did you invite yourself along? Like, did you just rock up with a banner? Like, how did that work? No, I, 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 it was to be fair, it was at the Urban Design Summit of COP, but I, I got a Blue Area Plus. So that was wow. good. I didn't go to it. I spent every moment of COP meeting with people because yes. I just wanted to get the project funded and I wanted everyone to, to know about it. But yeah, so basically, we're working with them to create two things. We are going to use this research to evolve this hub into the best version of itself so that we can create a blueprint for the country, which means that any other community group who wants to you know, create a hub like this in their shopping centre. We will help them find the partners and we'll give them the blueprint to run with. Um, But also those people who are already doing things can take our blueprint and just use bits of it if that are useful to them. And then the second thing that we're creating is a basically a behavioral science research report with Imperial. So they will publish it. It will be peer reviewed. And what that will do is, as I said, give you what language, what media, what outreach activities and what gateway drug to sustainability is relevant to all these different areas, these different groups and demographics. And especially looking at intersectionality on race and on and on socioeconomics um, so that we can sort of try and deal with a problem just like any corporate would deal with it um, by collaborating with proper researchers, by using the hub um, and southeast London communities in Lewisham, in Bromley, in Greenwich, in Croydon and doing the research we need to identify how we communicate with those people. So essentially, it will be a communication and practical support guide. Um, which will be shared with all of the third sector, all of the charities, NGOs, community groups who are trying so hard in all different areas of sustainability, all different areas of biodiversity, air quality, community work. They can have this report, which they couldn't afford to do on their own. And that can mean that they can reach their existing members more impactfully so that those people will become more actively rather than passively engaged. But they can also reach new groups and demographics they could never reach before because they just didn't know how. Mm. Similarly, the civil servants who, you know, whether they're in Bayes or DEFRA or Cabinet Office or wherever they are, there's a lot of civil servants who really care and who would like to make sure that the right messages get out to all different groups and communities, whether it's they've got funding for a specific group or whether it's a message they're trying to share or guidance. Um, And again, they don't have the money to do the research on how to do that. They can use that document basically to help inform both the language they use, but also the kind of outreach activities that they fund when they're trying to target and reach different groups and different demographics with their message. So hopefully in this way, we will empower communities at a grassroots level to be supported by these community hubs across the country, which will be owned essentially by the local charity that will run it. And also at the same time, from a national perspective, the communications coming out of government, the communications coming out of thousands of charities across the UK will just be much more inclusive and accessible 
and they will be able to tailor what they are saying so they can make sure they do hit those other groups and demographics. And it's not just the same people time and yeah. time. I'm just honestly so in awe and really quite intimidated by you. Oh my God, please don't. You've written two books. Most people go, that. Oh, oh, I want to set up a Facebook group and, and that would be hard work. Or I want to get some community stuff going and that would feel really hard work. And then Oh, maybe, maybe if we're thinking really big, we could set up a local community hub and that would, you know, be really hard work, but still really impactful. And you've gone, okay, I'm going to do all, you know, I've done that, 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 that. And now I'm going to like, I mean, I wouldn't even know where to start to get someone from Imperial to come and, you know, I wouldn't even know what questions they would need to ask or, do you know, and you've kind of like, I just, I, yeah. And <laughs> uh, but you, but you know, it. you basically see the good in people, right? Everybody wants there's a lot of good people out there. There's a, real, a lot of good human beings out there that once they understand climate change, once they understand what that means to their loved ones, and once they realize that actually the way they can have the biggest impact is by using their professional skills for good in this mm. way, then together you can make amazing things. And to me, it just didn't make sense for us to just have, I mean, it's the hub is a resource. The pilot hub is a resource for Bromley. It's no debt. It's 100% doing a huge amount of good in Southeast London because that shopping centre caters for Lewisham, it caters for Greenwich, it caters for Bromley, even Croydon. It's doing a huge amount of good, but it could do so much more good and it's not a lot of extra work. Well, it is a bit, but it's only something we would want to do as a charity anyway. We want to become more inclusive and accessible. We don't want it to always be the same people because that's not what we're about. And, you know, if you look at it entirely cynically, we'll never hit... The 2030 deadline of halving emissions if we just keep thinking that it's okay for only white middle class people to be involved mm. not only is that entirely unfair but it's also just doesn't logically make any sense you know so we all have to do it together we have to empower each other we have to make sure no one's left out amazing i'm super aware of time because you're a very very busy person as we're just establishing um so now you're you've given up your lawyer part. yeah I, I decided basically that's the best use of my time is to put more my energy into this now rather than trying to split myself between a day job and this work and and to be fair like the day job in terms of I mean I love the people I work with the creatives I work with were amazing um and I love the sustainability work I did at ITV but I felt like there's always somebody who will want to get involved in sustainability and TV right. it's sexy there's not always somebody who's going to want to do this grassroots work which is going to impact the UK and and understand it will see the vision that I have, I guess, for it. And I'm lucky that I now work with a group of amazing people at Greener and Cleaner. We got that funding. So we've got people in part-time jobs and contract jobs and, you know, amazing people like Claire who put in so much time every week. Um, but I just felt like I couldn't allow myself to use the energy that I needed for this charity in a role where I wasn't making a difference. And I just looked at how much time we have left, which is about seven odd years to halve emissions and that's you know hopefully yeah. that's what we've got um, and I just thought you know what's the best use of my time is it better that we stay in this house in this lifestyle but my kids have you know a a very stressed out burnt out mum and less chance of us hitting 2030 deadline or is it better that I give up work we downsize our home potentially um, which was only going to help with our energy bills <laughs> uh, and you know and I focus 100% on my energy on making sure that this project happens to empower the United Kingdom to include everyone in the conversation and really normalize and popularize sustainable living for all and I just thought well it's a no-brainer isn't it <laughs> so, so like you know 
I want to do something that is going to protect all the kids. And, you know, it's not just kids. We're all dealing with it now. You know, there's floods all over the world, yeah. uh, including the UK. There's droughts all over the world, including the UK. And just because something happens somewhere else, we find it really hard to relate to that. But sooner or later, it's going to have a knock-on effect to us. I mean, it's inevitable. Yeah. So we have to kind of get on it. And if you can do anything, if you can reach out within your business and say, what are we doing? If you can reach out within your PTA, your residence association, your church group, your mosque, and say, what are we doing to take responsibility and actually, you know, make a difference in terms of our sustainability, our carbon footprint. That's, that's all, you know, that's great stuff. Use your voice. I think that's the number one thing I've learned is like, everyone has different things they can do in terms of their choices, but we all have a voice and we can all send the odd email to our counselor, our MP. We can all send the odd email instead of moaning about it on social media yes. to, you know, to supermarkets or, or Twitter, et cetera, et cetera, because that's what's going to make the difference. And really, if you can add environment as an agenda item to your team meeting, not even environment, sustainability, if it's in a work setting, add sustainability as an agenda item to your, um, you know, your SLT meeting, to your board meeting every week or every month. That's what we did at ITV. And I mean, there are a surprising number of people who are really interested in this and want to get involved. So get involved at work, get involved in your social life, in your, you know, home life, in your school life. Um, and that suddenly you'll see loads of other people want to get involved too. And, and that's what's happened with us. And I just feel really lucky that I've met so many wonderful, positive people like you who've been an absolute inspiration. And like many others, um, True and Restoric, who's at, um, who set up Hubbub and Global Action yeah. Plan, is a massive hero of mine. And bless him, once a month, he has a chat with me and like sort of just gives me a bit of mentoring and support, which is amazing. I mean, there are some amazing people that I've met um, and I feel really grateful for, you know, to have been brave enough to reach out to them and then for them to have been, you know, to have got it enough to reach back. And for well, it's hugely brave to reach out. And, and I guess two, two questions that I'm thinking and I'm hoping other people, you know, that this might be helpful for other people as well is how do you get people to take you seriously sometimes? Because I feel like I might go to my local council and go, I want to start up this sustainability hub um and have you got a spare space and they'll go no and who the hell are you and what do you know do you know like yes I do know (laughs) do you think that well you just come across as as uber confident like won't take no for an answer very sure of yourself and you know (laughs) this is this is going to happen so you might as well jump on board and and I can see that that's a really great way but you must have had people who've been like yeah oh god you have to be so resilient and especially with like mostly male mostly white mostly middle class mostly older um (laughs) counselors um it can be quite depressing quite frankly um but it kind of makes me think that I need to do it even more because I can't allow my children to be held for ransom by the sort of old-fashioned culture and status quo maintenance of of people like that it's sort of like but one thing I would say is really helpful is identify who the groups are that that you're council or your organization trusts so let's say you are you know you're in a local area and you want to do this hub thing that you suggested then you know liaise with the residents associations liaise with the church groups because if your council is also quite old school uh those are the groups that they respect liaise with the rotary liaise yes. with i mean like god i mean who knows potentially the masons i don't know mm-hmm. but like basically those the groups, the rep- the community groups that represent their voting demographic, their traditional voting demographic. So 
yes, a lot of them, when they looked at me, it was like, oh, you know, you're an emotional mother with two children, you know, what nonsense. Even though I'd been a lawyer for 20 years, yeah. even though, you know, people would pay me good money for my advice. You know? yeah. uh, unfortunately, you know, you know, and there have been situations. You're this slightly where hysterical, to, you know, yeah, overwrought woman who's, yeah. And, and getting on board, this is really sad in this day and age, but even getting on board men to the conversation, yeah. even getting, like, when I talk to groups when there, are, when there are men there, I'm like, men, you need to take responsibility and make your voice heard because at yeah. the moment the council doesn't think that you care. Yeah. And I know you've got a lot on, but so have we, <laughs> kind of thing. And so, like, you know, there was, a, there was a local surgeon who was worried about air quality, and I'd been bringing up, I mean, this even happens with residents associations and other community groups, but with a community group, let's say, which was local to me repeatedly, but they didn't want to do anything about it. As soon as this 67-year-old surgeon raised that he wanted to have a community meeting about air quality, suddenly it was put on and they contacted me to talk at it and other people to talk at it. But the point was that what action wasn't taken until someone who looked like them suggested it had to happen. And since then, bless him, he said, look, I know what it's like. Um, it's not just, you know, it's in medicine, it's in the law, it's in local politics, in it, it's in everything. Though I know it's sad but true, but sometimes you do need a 70-year-old white man, uh, middle-class white man, to, to say, you know, to make the point you need to make because they won't hear it coming from your mouth. Mm. And so if you ever need me to be at a conversation or to send a letter or whatever, just let me know. And bless him, he's completely right. God, isn't that depressing? It is depressing. But, but and then, then also, how? so then like, how do we reach all these, you know, 60, 70-year-old middle-class white men who most of them aren't engaged with it? So we need to engage them so then they can help us. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But that's where things like talking to your Rotary Club or mm. talking to your library association or talk, getting involved with residents associations yeah. is a really good way of meeting those people. And actually, uh, one of my local residents associations has been really, really um, passionate about the environment. And that's really because the chair got it. And so he helped drive it forward as part of the agenda. And I supported that and he supported us. But I think it's, you know, I think it's a looking at, it's being intelligent about how you're pitching yourself and who you're pitching yourself to. And sometimes I can't help it. I'll go to a volunteer's reception and and I'll start talking to them anyway and then still get down the way that they react. But like, then I have to go to myself the nice thing about doing a national project as well as a local project is I don't have to get too depressed about people <laughs> I have to deal with locally. Um, but also the nice thing about having a group where you know that thousands of other people around you actually care about it is that when people say to your face, oh, no one cares about being able to cycle in Southeast London, you can go in your head, yes, I, well, I know that they do. So, mm. so you can't really gaslight me in that way because I'm already in touch with lots of people who do care about it. So that that's really good for the resilience, being able to have other people, whether it's online or in person, but that you know will be able to sort of empathize with you and are on the same page as you. Like not mm. being lonely and isolated when you're worrying about these things is so powerful. And obviously you can achieve so much more together because again, like we managed to get the biggest um the biggest turnout for the air quality action plan uh, consultation as a public consultation of any London borough we got four times the London average and that's because we made sure that the information on the public consultation about air pollution went to all the different community groups and organizations we had you know reached out to in the past and were working with so that they knew it was going on but also we tailored it and we said how it was relevant to their members 
And I mean, I know that's a basic version of what mm. we're doing now in much more great depth. But again, it showed us how important it is to be able to tailor what you're saying to people. And that groups who have nothing to do with the environment traditionally are actually, do actually care and want to get more involved. Uh, but they just need to be shown the way how they can do it on their own terms. And it's the same as people, right? Yeah. Penultimate question. How do we clone you? How do we get one of you in every town kicking ass and making stuff happen? <laughs> well, recently, um, recently I, I was put in touch with a guy, an amazing guy called Puran Desai, who um, set up One Planet Living, which is the basis for the UN SDGs. And he put me in touch with a number of other amazing women across the UK who are setting up their own different versions of community hubs and uh, support structures and so we've been talking recently about potentially setting up a network there is also the mm. there's also the transitions towns network uh, I think there's climate action hubs networks so I think like everyone just needs to sort of like share knowledge and, and yes. collaborate where they can and so even having a once a month kind of zoom call that people can yeah. zoom into and just even if they don't have that team yet can just hear about how people are doing it and sort of pick up on things that way is, is quite useful so so if someone sat at home thinking right okay this is you know uh, I'm you know I've been thinking about doing some bits for a while but actually I really really want to what's 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 the first thing people should do well for me the way it started with me was putting out feelers on our local Facebook groups like I don't know Bromley Life or whatever yeah. it was and just saying is anyone else concerned about air pollution or is anyone else concerned about you know the climate crisis and want to think about it <laughs> It was more like, actually, can anyone share their tips yeah. on how to reduce air pollution or how to reduce the carbon footprint of our weekly shop or whatever it is? And then people chime in because you're asking them for advice rather yeah. than getting into politics. Rather than then thinking, shit, she's going to make me volunteer for something. And then, <laughs> <laughs> and then you say, oh, my gosh, that tip is amazing. Um, you know, if I did set, if we set up you know, fancy setting up a little group together, or if I set up a group, would you come and share that amazing yeah. tip in our Facebook group? And maybe just starting there is, is a good way. I mean, you can do lots of things. You can set up green groups in your PTA, in your residence association, yeah. in your church group. So those are kind of ready-made settings that make it easier. But if you want to do a general one for your community, then something like Facebook um, is probably a good place to start by reaching out and sort mm. of testing the waters yeah um, in terms of seeing who's who's interested and who's up for it and I hate to say it but a lot of local um sort of parenting groups and mums groups and things like oh. whatever Bromley mums network or whatever those are the sorts of groups also that it's a good place to test the waters because while we are not solely parents when we started off a lot of people who joined us were parents we still had some retirees and some single people who just got it and joined oh. us but I'd say initially the bulk of the people who got involved had kids because it makes it easier for them to connect with the future, I think, yes. and care about it. So, so like, and now I wouldn't say we were that heavily swayed, but still I'd say there's a good portion of our membership, which are parents or grandparents who are concerned, uh, not for themselves necessarily, but more for their grandchildren. But I yeah. think as people learn, they're going to be more concerned for themselves as well, because as we've seen from the pandemic and the cost of living crisis, this stuff affects us all now mm. and will continue to do so, unfortunately. So, so yeah, I think, I think that's a good place to start. And um, though I know, you know, Facebook isn't everyone's favorite place, but it's just very easy for, for reaching yeah. people and testing the waters, I think. Yeah. 
So where can we come and find you? Where can we find out more about Greener and Cleaner? Where can we, I mean, I'm sure people will have so many, you're going to be, well, hopefully you you will, uh, hopefully you will and hopefully you won't, but, but you know, be bombarded with people interested in finding out I love more. hearing, I love hearing from people. So my name is Parisa Wright, so Paris Renee at the end, and then Wright, W-R-I-G-H-D. I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, I have an email address, which is Parisa at greenerandcleaner.co.uk. We have a website, which is greenerandcleaner.co.uk. Uh, and we have a Facebook group, which is uh, Greener and Cleaner. I think it might be Bromley and Beyond now. But anyway, we've got a Greener and Cleaner hub Facebook group and a Greener and Cleaner Bromley and Beyond group. But that's our main charity group. And that's got over 7,000 on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a really good place to ask questions. So I'm more than happy for people to contact me or to look on the Facebook group and contact us. We've got our community sustainability support hub pilot uh, in uh, the Glades, Bromley, BR1, upstairs next door to Waterstones. So that's open every day of the week, apart from Tuesdays and Wednesdays, because we found they were the quietest days. Um, And we always have events on usually usually Thursday, Friday, Saturday and Monday, actually to be honest, almost every day we're open, we, have something <laughs> on. we always have something on for kids um, because we find it easier for the parents to be able to talk if there's colouring or yes. crafting the kids can be doing. Um, but most of our workshops are actually aimed at adults. So learning to sew, learning to compost, uh, I don't know, learning to fix electrical, whatever it is kind of thing. Um, learning to insulate your home or fix a puncture, et cetera, yes. et cetera. And then during the school holidays and on the Saturday, we always make sure that there are workshops for kids because we understand that with a cost of living crisis, it's really useful to have some free activities, whether that's, I don't know, upcycling jam jars or making little bags with hand sewing or whatever it is for kids to get involved in as well. So they know, I mean, we have a youth outreach team as well, which is doing projects with local schools in Southeast London. So yeah, so I'm, I'm now on a mission to get them about 150 grand to fund the youth outreach team for the next two and a half years. But that's included in the 1.5 million I've got to raise to cover all our costs the next two and a half years. But that's fine. Don't worry about it. Look, I've just got to find three corporations, three corporate sponsors who want to put in 490 grand each. It's easy. You know, and I have no doubt that you will do it. (laughs) I have absolutely no doubt that you will do it. Um, I will put all of those links into the show notes if people want to um, to go and find them and to to come and um, find Parisa. Oh my God, thank you so much. Thank you for finding some time to come and chat to us. But thank you for your energy, your kick-ass, your just phenomenal. Often people think I'm just one person. What difference can I make? And then, wow, look at what a difference you're making. It's absolutely If I can do it, anyone can do it, literally. I'm not particularly clever or anything. It's just like, you just need to want to do it, right? You can do anything you want to do as long as you're willing to like go that extra mile. Try not to burn out like I did. (laughs) (laughs) That's all I would say. It was bad timing with the pandemic. Um, But thank you so much, Jen. And thank you so much for all your hard work, making sure that people realise that you don't have to be perfect. And I mean, I still eat a bit of meat. We still have a car on the drive. We just don't use it every week. Um, At the moment, unfortunately, we still fly once a year now. Um, But we're going to try and get that to once every other year and gradually phase that out as well. This year, we had an amazing trip going to Centre Parks in Holland by train. Oh, I need to talk to you about that as well. That's on our agenda for next year. I really appreciate (laughs) the efforts you're making to like normalise and popularise sustainable living as something that is not about sacrifice. It's about sort of adaptation and opportunity, basically. Amazing. Oh, thank you so much.
been listening to Sustainable-ish, you wonderful sack of loveliness, with me, Jen Gale. Hopefully we've fired some neurons and we've got the old grey matter thinking about what changes you can make in your life this week to live that little bit more sustainably. Do let me know what that is. I love to hear about the changes that people are making, big or small, every single one counts. If you've enjoyed the show, and I hope you have, do hop over to iTunes to leave a comment or a review and then the bots at iTunes will cotton on to just how awesome it is and it will show up in more people's feeds. Or at least I think that's how it works. Thanks so much for listening. I will catch you next time. Bye.